This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Narrated by Sean McKinley. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Five, Part Three. Some of the Scottish immigrants, heated with republican enthusiasm, and utterly destitute of the skill necessary to the conduct of great affairs, employed all their industry and ingenuity, not in collecting means for the attack which they were about to make on a formidable enemy, but in devising restraints on their leader's power and securities against his ambition. The self-complacent stupidity with which they insisted on organizing an army as if they had been organizing a commonwealth would be incredible if it had not been frankly and even boastfully recorded by one of themselves. At length all differences were compromised. It was determined that an attempt should be forthwith made on the western coast of Scotland, and that it should be promptly followed by a descent on England. Argyle was to hold the nominal command in Scotland, but he was placed under the control of a committee which reserved to itself all the most important parts of the military administration. The committee was empowered to determine where the expedition should land, to appoint officers, to superintend the levying of troops, to dole out provisions and ammunition. All that was left to the general was to direct the evolutions of the army in the field, and he was forced to promise that even in the field, except in the case of a surprise, he would do nothing without the assent of a council of war. Monmouth was to command in England. His soft mind had, as usual, taken an impress from the society which surrounded him. Ambitious hopes, which had seemed to be extinguished, revived in his bosom. He remembered the affection with which he had been constantly greeted by the common people in town and country, and expected that they would now rise by hundreds of thousands to welcome him. He remembered the good will which the soldiers had always borne him, and flattered himself that they would come over to him by regiments. Encouraging messages reached him in quick succession from London. He was assured that the violence and injustice with which the elections had been carried on had driven the nation mad, that the prudence of the leading Whigs had with difficulty prevented a sanguinary outbreak on the day of the coronation and that all the great lords who had supported the exclusion bill were impatient to rally round him. Wildman, who loved to talk treason in parables, sent to say that the Earl of Richmond, just two hundred years before, had landed in England with a handful of men, and had a few days later been crowned on the field of Bosworth with a diadem taken from the head of Richard. Danvers undertook to raise the city. The duke was deceived into the belief that, as soon as he had set up his standards, Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Hampshire, Cheshire, would rise in arms. He consequently became eager for the enterprise from which a few weeks before he had shrunk. His countrymen did not impose on him restrictions so elaborately absurd as those which the Scotch immigrants had devised. All that was required of him was to promise that he would not assume the regal title till his pretensions had been submitted to the judgment of a free parliament. It was determined that two Englishmen, Eiloff and Rumbold, 
should accompany Argyle to Scotland, and that Fletcher should go with Monmouth to England. Fletcher, from the beginning, had augured ill of the enterprise, but his chivalrous spirit would not suffer him to decline a risk which his friends seemed eager to encounter. When Gray repeated with approbation what Wildman had said about Richmond and Richard, the well-read and thoughtful Scot justly remarked that there was a great difference between the fifteenth century and the seventeenth. Richmond was assured of the support of barons, each of whom could bring an army of feudal retainers into the field, and Richard had not one regiment of regular soldiers. The exiles were able to raise, partly from their own resources and partly from the contributions of well-wishers in Holland, a sum sufficient for the two expeditions. Very little was obtained from London. Six thousand pounds had been expected thence, but instead of the money came excuses from Wildman, which ought to have opened the eyes of all who were not willfully blind. The Duke made up the deficiency by pawning his own jewels and those of Lady Wentworth. Arms, ammunition, and provisions were bought, and several ships which lay at Amsterdam were freighted. It is remarkable that the most illustrious and the most grossly injured man among the British exiles stood far aloof from these rash counsels. John Locke hated tyranny and persecution as a philosopher, but his intellect and his temper preserved him from the violence of a partisan. He had lived on confidential terms with Shaftesbury, and had thus incurred the displeasure of the court. Locke's prudence had, however, been such that it would have been to little purpose to bring him even before the corrupt and partial tribunals of that age. In one point, however, he was vulnerable. He was a student of Christ Church in the University of Oxford. It was determined to drive him from that celebrated college the greatest man of whom it could ever boast. But this was not easy. Locke had, at Oxford, abstained from expressing any opinion on the politics of the day. Spies had been said about him. Doctors of divinity and masters of arts had not been ashamed to perform the vilest of all offices, that of watching the lips of a companion in order to report his words to his ruin. The conversation in the hall had been purposely turned into irritating topics, to the exclusion bill and to the character of the Earl of Shaftesbury, but in vain. Locke neither broke out nor dissembled but maintained such steady silence and composure as forced the tools of power to own with vexation that never man was so complete a master of his tongue and of his passions. When it was found that treachery could do nothing, arbitrary power was used. After vainly trying to inveigle Locke into a fault, the government resolved to punish him without one. Orders came from Whitehall that he should be ejected and those orders the dean and canons made haste to obey. Locke was travelling on the continent for his health when he learned that he had been deprived of his home and of his bread, without a trial or even a notice. The injustice with which he had been treated would have excused him if he had resorted to violent methods of redress, but he was not to be blinded by personal resentment. He augured no good from the schemes of those who had assembled at Amsterdam, and he quietly repaired to Utrecht, where, while his partners in misfortune were planning their own destruction, he employed himself in writing his celebrated letter on toleration. 
the English government was early apprised that something was in agitation among the outlaws. An invasion of England seems not to have been at first expected, but it was apprehended that Argyle would shortly appear in arms among his clansmen. A proclamation was accordingly issued directing that Scotland should be put into a state of defence. The militia was ordered to be in readiness. All the clans hostile to the name of Campbell were set in motion. John Murray, Marquess of Athol, was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Argyleshire, and, at the head of a great body of his followers, occupied the castle of Inverary. Some suspected persons were arrested. Others were compelled to give hostages. Ships of war were sent to cruise near the Isle of Bute, and part of the army of Ireland was moved to the coast of Ulster. While these preparations were making in Scotland, James called into his closet Arnold Van Sitters, who had long resided in England as ambassador from the United Provinces, and Everard Van Dykvelt, who, after the death of Charles, had been sent by the State-General on a special mission of condolence and congratulation. The King said that he had received from unquestionable sources intelligence of designs which were forming against the throne by his banished subjects in Holland. Some of the exiles were cutthroats, whom nothing but the special providence of God had prevented from committing a foul murder. And among them was the owner of the spot which had been fixed for the butchery. Of all living men, said the king, Argyle has the greatest means of annoying me, and of all places Holland is that whence a blow may be best aimed against me. The Dutch envoys assured his majesty that what he had said should instantly be communicated to the government which they represented, and expressed their full confidence that every exertion would be made to satisfy him. They were justified in expressing this confidence. Both the Prince of Orange and the States-General were at this time most desirous that the hospitality of their country should not be abused for purposes which the English government could justly complain. James had lately held language which encouraged the hope that he would not patiently submit to the ascendancy of France. It seemed probable that he would consent to form a close alliance with the United Provinces and the House of Austria. There was, therefore, at The Hague, an extreme anxiety to avoid all that could give him offence. The personal interest of William was also on this occasion identical with the interest of his father-in-law. But the case was one which required rapid and vigorous action, and the nature of the Batavian institutions made such action almost impossible. The Union of Utrecht, rudely formed, admits the agonies of a revolution for the purpose of meeting immediate exigencies, had never been deliberately revised and perfected in a time of tranquillity. Every one of the seven commonwealths which that union had bound together retained almost all their rights of sovereignty, and asserted those rights punctiliously against the central government. As the federal authorities had not the means of exacting prompt obedience from the provincial authorities, so the provincial authorities had not the means of exacting prompt obedience from the municipal authorities. Holland alone contained eighteen cities, each of which was, for many purposes, an independent state, jealous of all interference from without. 
if the rulers of such a city received from the Hague an order which was unpleasing to them, they either neglected it altogether, or executed it languidly and tardily. In some town councils, indeed, the influence of the Prince of Orange was all-powerful, but unfortunately the place where the British exiles had congregated, and where their ships had been fitted out, was the rich and populous Amsterdam, and the magistrates of Amsterdam were the heads of the faction hostile to the federal government and to the house of Nassau. The naval administration of the United Provinces was conducted by five distinct boards of admiralty. One of those boards, Sate at Amsterdam, was partly nominated by the authorities of that city, and seems to have been entirely animated by their spirit. All the endeavors of the federal government to effect what James desired were frustrated by the invasions of the functionaries of Amsterdam, and by the blunders of Colonel Bevel Skelton, who had just arrived at The Hague as envoy from England. Skelton had been born in Holland during the English troubles, and was therefore supposed to be peculiarly qualified for his post. But he was, in truth, unfit for that and for every other diplomatic situation. Excellent judges of character pronounced him to be the most shallow, fickle, passionate, presumptuous, and garrulous of men. He took no serious notice of the proceedings of the refugees, till three vessels which had been equipped for the expedition to Scotland were safe out of the Zyder Zee, till the arms, ammunition, and provisions were on board, and till the passengers had embarked. Then, instead of applying, as he should have done, to the States-General, who sate close to his own door, he sent a messenger to the magistrates of Amsterdam, with a request that the suspected ships might be detained. The magistrates of Amsterdam answered that the entrance of the Zyder Zee was out of their jurisdiction, and referred him to the federal government. It was notorious that this was a mere excuse, and that if there had been any real wish at the Stadthouse of Amsterdam to prevent Argyle from sailing, no difficulties would have been made. Skelton now addressed himself to the States-General. They showed every disposition to comply with his demand, and as the case was urgent, departed from the course which they ordinarily observed in the transaction of business. On the same day on which he made his application to them, an order, drawn in exact conformity with his request, was dispatched to the Admiralty of Amsterdam. But this order, in consequence of some misinformation, did not correctly describe the situation of the ships. They were said to be in the Texel. They were in the Vlie. The Admiralty of Amsterdam made this error a plea for doing nothing, and before the error could be rectified, the three ships had sailed. The last hours which Argyle passed on the coast of Holland were hours of great anxiety. Near him lay a Dutch man-of-war whose broadside would in a moment have put an end to his expedition. Round his little fleet a boat was rowing, in which were some persons with telescopes whom he suspected to be spies, but no effectual step was taken for the purpose of detaining him and on the afternoon of the 2nd of May he stood out to sea before a favorable breeze. The voyage was prosperous. On the 6th the Orkneys were in sight. Argyle, very unwisely, anchored off Kirkwall, and allowed two of his followers to go on shore there. The bishop ordered them to be arrested. 
the refugees proceeded to hold a long and animated debate on this misadventure for from the beginning to the end of their expedition however languid and irresolute their conduct might be they never in debate wanted spirit or perseverance some were for an attack on kirkwall some were for proceeding without delay to argyleshire at last the earl seized some gentlemen who lived near the coast of the island and proposed to the bishop an exchange of prisoners the bishop returned no answer and the fleet after losing three days sailed away this delay was full of danger it was speedily known at edinburgh that the rebel squadron had touched at the orkneys troops were instantly put in motion when the earl reached his own province he found that preparations had been made to repel him at dunstaffnog he sent his second son charles on shore to call the campbells to arms but charles returned with gloomy tidings the herdsmen and fishermen were indeed ready to rally around mccallummore but of the heads of the clan some were in confinement and others had fled those gentlemen who remained at their homes were either well affected to the government or afraid of moving and refused even to see the son of their chief from dunstaffnog the small armament proceeded to campbelltown near the southern extremity of the peninsula of kintyre here the earl published a manifesto drawn up in holland under the direction of the committee by james stuart a scotch advocate whose pen was a few months later employed in a very different way in this paper were set forth with a strength of language sometimes approaching to scurrility many real and some imaginary grievances it was hinted that the late king had died by poison a chief object of the expedition was declared to be the entire suppression not only of popery but of prelacy which was termed the most bitter root and offspring of popery and all good scotchmen were exhorted to do valiantly for the cause of their country and of their god end of part three